clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next episode of Ots Tyrion, the podcast where we chronicle and celebrate the horror of the the area in and around the turn of the 21st century. Um, you know us by now. You love us. I am Jordan Cruciola. There is no Sam Weinman, though he resides always with us in aesthetic and spirit. But today, we do have another delightful special guest, and I will kick it really straight over to that person. So guest, why don't you introduce yourself and also introduce the movie that you have chosen for us to discuss today. This is, mind you everybody, this is one of my personal very favorites. So I'm super excited to be having this conversation. Hello, yes, I, my name is Kaylin and I'm a writer and Jordan and I are good buds. Uh, we go on a, many hikes together and I'm very excited <laughs> to, uh, to talk about Valentine's today. One of our, our shared love interests along with just Denise Richards in general. In general, yes. In, in general, what a gift that was given to us. Like the, the period of time for the movies that we dissect on the pod, we've really stamped to be around like 1996 is the beginning point. And that's when we start talking about it with like screen is really what ushered it in. And, and another movie that goes along with it in that year is the craft. And then it travels through the two thousands proper zero to 10. And then there's a bit of hangover in that period. Other movies that you'll hear us talk about in due time, uh, personal favorites among Sam and me, such as the roommate or Texas chainsaw 3d. Uh, but this is that glorious period of time uh, that we're talking about here you know, the 1996 beginning point, that also coincides outside of the horror arena with the maximum effect period of time of a young Denise Richards, who I think to a lot of movie-watching millennials of that era, uh, inside and outside of horror, was a formative presence. Um really a, a, an, an essential erotic thriller of the time, a movie like Wild Things. Uh, she was in the Paul Verhoeven legitimate classic, Starship Troopers. I think that was like a span of three years in which that happened, which is like boom, 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 boom. But then like jump forward a few years out of that like heat of the 90s three-year stretch and you have 2001's Valentine and Denise Richards tacking yet another incredible turn into her filmography and also really a it is a um it's a murderer's row of 2001 uh, personalities in this movie and that like this is so much of what defines that uh that aughts aughts era sensibility is having the all-star ensemble cast of like very famous people that you almost more than likely plucked from a television show and had a bunch of really sexy young people come together to to make a fun horror movie. And Denise being, I think, I think the crown, the jewel in the crown uh, at the time that, that Valentine came out. Indeed, she's, she's really at the height of her power. And <laughs> her, her eyebrow, her Chicago accent that never goes anywhere. Uh, I, I like to think that this movie, uh, I would give top billing to Denise Richards' eyebrows yeah. specifically. Mm -hmm, specifically. That's top. Everything yeah. else is underneath. You know. Yeah, with her with her cascading brown hair. Um, shortly shortly thereafter. Um, oh God! And in this period of time too, we have Drop Dead Gorgeous. I mean, the cultural touchstones of this woman. And this God, is. Wonders. Oh my God! And and this is we have a so the the flavor of Valentine. Um, if you haven't watched it, where have you been? Get on it immediately. But we have um, Jessica Caulfield who was uniquely respected for her powers in the horror of the aughts era. Uh, you have Jessica Capshaw, you have Marley Shelton, you have Denise Richards, you have David fucking Boreanaz. And you even, like, this is a cast that is so, that is so rich with talent at the time that a young Katherine Heigl only gets a few minutes of pressure screen time at the very beginning as the cold open kill. And when you are about to kill... Izzy of Grey's Anatomy in the early 2000s, you are really saying something. You're, you're really making a power move. But so, Kaylin, uh, tell the folks at home, what's Valentine about? 
Valentine, a Cupid face killer stalks and attacks a tight knit circle of young women as the swiftly approaching Valentine's Day looms in the distance. This 2001 Jamie Blanks directed feature, Valentine, serves as not only a follow up to his 1998 cult classic Urban Legend, mm-hmm. but also one of the last movies that he would direct before he returned to composing full time. That is an that is an interesting turn to just do urban legends and Valentine. I mean, do your hero's work and then go, I guess. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> what a all hits, no skips there for feature films for, for that gentleman. Um, right. go out while I'm on top. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the most fascinating thing. Um, I think as a, as a cultural item as a cultural object about um valentine for the current for the, for the purposes of our discussion very specifically here on Osterion with with talking about horror in that era um the reason the millennial era classification for me extends into that 90s mid 90s to um sort of fumes of the 2010s is because horror of the new millennium is bisected pretty pretty tidily um, not not quite in half, but it's it's bisected quite clearly between by 9-11. In the classification of millennia era horror, you have the movies that are sort of that exist in the archetype that follows Scream, which was created by screenwriter Kevin Williamson and obviously director Wes Craven. And that inspires the sort of wave of teen horror resurgence that comes after it, that is sort of like, you know, let's take what we experienced during the slasher boom, but let's kind of polish it up a little bit. We're going to have these movies that aren't necessarily going to be churning out like straight to VOD sequel, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten. but we're going to have these like one, two, possibly three film franchises where we're going to get very attractive, very famous cast, very famous actors of the day to make these really zeitgeisty horror films that we're going to put a fair amount of budget behind. And we're going to put a fair amount of marketing behind. Like these are studio productions. These aren't like these aren't independent things that have been cobbled together. And in the vein of Scream, you have those movies like I Know What You Did Last Summer, um, the, very much the Kevin Williamson sort of sort of template. You have um, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. You have Disturbing Behavior, which is a Kevin Williamson movie. You have The Faculty, which is a Kevin Williamson movie. You have Urban Legends. You have the sequel to Urban Legends, Urban Final Cut. You have, and you have Valentine. And that very much exists in that these are, these are young 20-somethings living in San Francisco but it very much adheres to that um, sort of closed circuit of young people um, in the middle of a slasher movie suddenly. That's all fun. That's, that's a fun in games period of time in horror. And then September 11th happens and the tone of the world changes and the national consciousness here in America changes. And while we're having our fun slasher resurgence in the United States, Horror is peaking in an extreme violence kind of way in international markets. You have the new French extremity that is emerging in the late 90s, early 2000s with filmmakers like Alexander Aja, who directed High Tension and Gaspar Noé, who directed, um, up to that point, it would have been um, I Stand Alone and obviously uh, his seminal um, exploitation, basically rape drama, Irreversible, um, and... Yeah, I just want to, I'm always careful to qualify uh, Irreversible because it's not a rape revenge story. It's something different. It is a, it is it a, is. it is a story of a rape. Yes. It is a story of a rape. It is a drama, but given the high intensity of the material delivered, I classify it easily under the camp, under, under the umbrella of horror. And then, and you also have over in um, Japan, you have Audition, you have, um, the Korean wave, uh, the Korean cultural wave is happening as censorship restrictions have been, have loosened um, in the late nineties on the film production sector for the first time, creating a truly um, robust domestic film market. And you're starting to see what will be the beginnings of the very sort of genre blended sort of um, global leading taste and sensibility that South Korea has brought to horror. You're seeing it start to like build up, in films like the Whispering Corridors franchise, which is very seminal for horror cinema coming out of South Korea at the time. And you have um, extreme movies in addition to think something like Audition, which I find to be like palatable torture, um, sort of torture with a point. And then you have torture with a whole lot of not of point, which is stuff like Ichi the Killer. 
And then that international sensibility is also, it's percolating down in Australia with the filmmaking duo of James Wan and Lee Wanell. And they are going to bring that extreme sensibility ashore here in the States with their Saw franchise. And that's really what's going to kick off in earnest what people, David uh, Edelstein at New York Magazine famously coined as the torture porn era. Uh, I personally like to think of it more as torture tourism. Um, But that is what is about to be on the horizon following Valentine. And, but so this is sort of, this movie comes out in 2001. And this is going to be one of those last movies made and released in this vein of aughts era post-scream horror before the gears switch over, Saw changes everything. And then we enter the violence boom and the, the, the co-booms of violence and remakes that are going to coincide and are going to make the sort of like the nihilistic, you know, new Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, the sort of Michael Bayization, as I often refer to on this podcast of horror that we see in, in films like the new TCMs and obviously something like, something like The Hitcher or House of Wax. Um, so yeah, that is, I think in a, that is, it is, it's not an I think, it's an I know it is an essential way through which to view this movie. And of course, part of the mission of the podcast is to take these things that I think are very easily seen as frivolities and then ground them in cultural realities and indeed like filmmaking decisions that actually lend a lot more weight to them and provide a lens through which we can examine these films in a very substantial way. Kaylin. Yeah, when I saw it released in 2001, I, of course, uh, along with everybody else in the entire world, associate 2001 in America with 9-11. So Mm -hmm. I was curious to see which month it came out. And I looked it up and it came out in February. I I thought that they would have pegged it to the holiday. Yeah. But yeah, seeing that it was released in February, I was like, well, that does make sense because it was before everything had shifted so dramatically Mm -hmm. it got me thinking a lot about this year that we're in right now and how people are going to look back on 2020 and they'll think of it as the year of coronavirus Mm -hmm. of administration of black men being killed in the street in broad daylight you Mm -hmm. know back in july six black trans women dead in seven days this has been the year from hell and it's it's strange to think of it as anything else but for people like you and i who have lived through it we can remember that small, tiny little moment at the beginning of the year, the first few months when things were still relatively innocent. Yeah, like when that was just, when a pandemic was just a whisper in the editorial board of certain major news publications and movies like Underwater and Birds of Prey were still arriving in whole theaters for us to go see. Yes, exactly. I looked up, I was like, what was the top movie in February of this year? I'm trying to remember. It was Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog, a movie I definitely had to remind myself recently came out this year and not last year. And honestly, folks, a fine movie. It is very pure. And in the same way, Valentine was very pure for the year 2001. Honestly. Well, and that was a, and that was a, and that's kind of the part of the, that bifurcation of the genre at the time is there is, there isn't cynicism to it. Like what, what Kevin Williamson and, and Wes Craven brought in with Scream was very much a return to sincerity for the genre, even while it had like its wink and a nod sensibility. Um, and like we were about to enter sort of like the age of irony and the age of snark in the 2000s. A big hallmark of that 90s stretch of horror, those 90s teen Screams movies was sincerity. Like these movies were these these movies were not laughing at horror. They were they were slasher horror movies. They were genuine, and Scream was a movie that loved movies from a director who loved horror, and who who clearly obviously from a screenwriter and a director who loved these characters and loved the thirty thousand foot view that it was going to take on the genre as it was going to redefine it, and. It is amazing watching movies that are not, it feels almost, it's, it's, it's quite the comfort uh, for me watching movies from this time. And, I, and Valentine is absolutely one of them where they, they do have good laugh lines. They are funny, but they are not in a position where, 
like Scream was uniquely self-aware, like that was its whole deal. But it's very, um, it's very vogue now to be aware of the thing that you are as you are being in. Like to be aware that you are a horror movie as you are a horror movie, to be aware that you are comedy as you are comedy. And this is just a straightforward slasher movie. This is just a straightforward, pure of heart, like generally quite mild slasher movie. And 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 much like Scream 2, despite the motivations of the killer himself, which somebody did um uh Ariel, who runs who runs the bite at Shutter, um, she responded uh, saying that she had recently uh, either watched or rewatched Valentine and said that like was you know just taken aback to see that it was the tagline basically could have been like incel the movie um, <laughs> as it is about like a scorned boy who becomes a resentful man bent on killing all of the girls who hurt his feelings um, in middle school and. But it, even in that motivation, it's, it's fascinating because there are two things happening that are very true in Valentine. It is a movie about a killer who it like fits that like angry incel rubric, like she was mean to me, so fuck women forever kind of situation. And my entire romantic life is organized around like vengeance. Jeremy Melton, the killer, uh, becomes David fucking Boreanaz, but still carries this childhood chip on his shoulder, which like a significantly bad thing happened to him. Like he went up and asked all the girls to dance at the school dance. They said no to him. One of them said yes, Dorothy, adult Jessica Capshaw. And then when she was making out with Jeremy under the bleachers, the boys in the grade saw her and started giving her shit. So she decided to say, oh, he forced himself on me. Actually, I didn't have anything to do with this. And Jeremy was trotted out, like had his shirt stripped off of him and had the shit kicked out of him in the middle of the gym. And then he was sent off to like reform school. Like his life was changed for the worse. This was bad. Becoming a serial killer is a disproportionate response to that kind of action. So while this movie is very much about like an incel's revenge, this, the, the a real magic of this movie to me as an adult is that Valentine is also a movie about how trash men are like yeah. at, at so many turns is it reinforced in valentine down to the like with the incel getting his revenge but also framing the incel as like a sociopathic asshole this movie just keeps telling us over and over again that men are pieces of shit and Paige, our resident hot, 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 hot girl, like they're all beautiful, but like she's Denise Richards, so she's a hot, hot, hot girl, um, exists to raise her eyebrow, give us dry one-liners, and emasculate men repeatedly over the course of its runtime, which is a, an incredible choice to make in 2001 in a movie that is very fluffy and very fun and very pure, but also 19 years ago, the has an entire third act that just is repeating to us what pieces of shit men are. I have an early flight tomorrow. I don't have to deal with this. Great. What, what's the matter? Oh, what's the matter? Well, the problem is you turned out to be a cheap, hypocritical sleazeball. Yeah, but you knew that. With Jessica Capshaw, with Dorothy saying at one point, somebody asked her like how she's doing and she's like, Nice party, Dorothy. It blows. Everything okay? Oh, yeah. Everything's fine. It's just that men suck. Like, yeah. it's given to us, the thesis statement of this movie is put to us directly by a pissed off character at her own party, rich girl party in her house. And she tells us how much men suck while an alcoholic incel is asking her how she's doing. In the process, little to her knowledge, of killing all of her friends off one by one. I mean, 20, 2001 said misandry, and I can't fucking get enough of it. I know. It's like as much as it is a movie about this guy getting revenge because girls at the school dance wouldn't spend time with him, it's also yeah. a movie that's saying it is not a woman's job to dance with you. It is yeah. not a woman's job to make you feel like a man. Mm -hmm. And I have so much respect for that. And it's something that I had not really realized my first time watching and going uh -huh. back and watching it again, like you said, as an adult, I was like, Oh, the scariest part of this movie <clears throat> is the 30-second datathon that happens at the top of the film. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the speed dating route, the like the incredible like 
post-newspaper classifieds pre-dating apps world in which Denise Richards Page takes Marley Shelton to a speed dating in-person event where you get 30 seconds per, per man slash woman to make your case and then move on. And it, it, is, it, is, it is not trying to play this as anything other than watch these women have to sit through men sucking until Paige finds one hot enough to compensate for the fact that they all are awful. That they're all trash in various ways. It's just like different examples of the ways that straight men have failed women. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, there's the, there's the damaged mama's boy who just can't stop talking about his mom is the perfect woman. There's, we open on a bad date that Katherine Heigl is on where a man named Jason keeps referring to himself as Jason. It's simple, really, Shelley. You see, from an evolutionary point of view, Jason looks for an attractive young woman because he wants healthy children. And a young woman, like yourself, looks for a successful man, like Jason, because she wants to feel safe. Like, not a single male character is brought into this story from the speed dating guys to the fucking detective allegedly trying to crack this case to even the one that you might think for a second is going to be the hero through it or the misunderstood guy with David Boreon as his character, um, he turns out to be a fucking murderer who's grounded in his like childhood scars of girls not being nice to him. So even though, even though Jeremy Melton rises in the end and does get what he wants, we do not sympathize with Jeremy Milton. We do not sympathize with this character and are like, oh shit, when we see like, our, when it is confirmed who he is and what he has done. But it just cements that, oh, there was the one guy in this movie who might've been the white knight and comes in to save the day. Oh, actually it turns out he's just as much of a waste man as everybody that has come before him in this and is just one of the few that Denise Richards did not have the pleasure of like castrating in public. No, this is just a dark story where the guy who is gaslighting wins. The predator wins. In <laughs> yeah, he does. It's a very does. dark story. It's a cautionary tale, honestly. It's a cautionary tale telling you that basically when a straight man refuses to have sex with you because mm -hmm. he's trying to seem commendable, he's actually busy murdering your friends. Yes. Really, when you think, when, you're, when chivalry enters your mind, consider murder as, <laughs> as an ulterior motive. Because I mean, one can never be too safe in that you, regard. Especially, just yet the scariest thing to me that Adam says in the entire film is, you are the only good thing in my life. Because that is a real thing that has mm -hmm. been said to me. And it is terrifying to hear it. One of the great... One of the great, grave miseducations of film, one of the great damages that movies have done to the world and women specifically, is, try, is, is convincing us just through repetition that that is something you want to hear. Mm -hmm. that, that someone telling you they, you are their entire life and the only thing they have going for them is romantic and not hugely fucking alarming and an indicator of a life of not reciprocity but of parasitic parasitic feeding on you and your energy that that will surely lead to over the long term of being with a man who has nothing he wakes up for besides you yeah, those are the words of a toxic abuser. No, they really are. <laughs> they really are. Word. I'm just worried that you'll hurt me. Hurt you? Hurt you? Oh, I love you. You're the only good thing in my life. All these other people, they can just die as far as I care. But you... So at the party, when Dorothy has been ditched, slashed, uh, 
left alone because the shitty guy who she thought was her boyfriend who was actually just embezzling money from her family fortune after he's been killed in her basement by um by cupid faced killer she's just thinking that she's been stiffed at her own party by this guy she's into campbell campbell who fucking sucks and oh my god campbell (laughs) campbell might suck more than the rest of them not only is he a con artist leeching off of dorothy for her money he's also trying to fund a silicon valley startup so worst 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 just go down (laughs) the checklist and you have this confrontation scene between jessica capshaw and marley shelton at her party where marley shelton's trying to comfort jessica capshaw because she's like hey you know it'll be okay like you know you'll bounce back like you know surely campbell's just like late or something and then dorothy just goes off on her friend and it's like you really can't stand it can you can't stand what that i found someone just as good as your boyfriend just as smart and just as good looking that's ridiculous i mean why i mean why should i why should the fat girl get a turn huh what? Oh, come on, Kate. You've always been the popular one, and Shelly was always the brainy one, and Lily was the fun one, and Paige was the sexy one, and I was the big, fat one. And as far as you're concerned, that's exactly the way that it is. Well, you know what? Screw all of you. And Marley Shelton is just like, I don't know what to do with all this information, but is like trying to be sympathetic about it. So even though our incel wins. What this movie actually is about is A, men are trash, and B, that the bonds of friendship must be preserved because they are the only thing that is going to be the sort of Faraday cage around you when you are being beset by the lightning storm of heterosexual men attempting to destroy your life. And as the bonds yeah. fray, that is where the women become vulnerable. That is so true. And like, just to piggyback off of that, I feel so much like Paige deserves better friends. It's just like <laughs> to me that her friends are constantly putting her down. I'm like, it's not bad enough that every man in this movie is constantly trying to make a pass at her. Yeah. Even men that are wearing the fucking uniform that are supposed to be law enforcement officials that we know and trust and yeah. are A-cab. helping us when yeah. we went dropping dead around us like flies yeah valentine yeah. said defund the police honestly it really did it <laughs> fuck the police and it also just really shows that women are just as bad as men sometimes i mean some of the things that people say to her like the moment when she 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 tells her friend she she says that the detective put his hand on her thigh yeah and Marley's response is, well, did you ask him to? Bitch, what the fuck is wrong with you? This Your friend is, has confided in you. Why don't you act more supportive? This is, it, it, like, there is, and this is where, this is where the era comes in. Like, in, in the way that, with its, in the way that it's down, down with men, I'm saying thesis, um, is very ahead of its time. That is the, that is the fascinating aspect of the Oxterion conversation, is that we run headlong into a lot of ugliness along the way. And in 2001, we were not talking about sex positivity. In 2001, we were not talking about the ills of slut shaming. This was a time when you called people slutty because you were being a jerk and you wanted to devalue a woman. And being, being slutty and being whorish was like one of the go-to main ways that I feel like in middle school, high school for me, like I graduated high school in 2003, that was what you called girls to very, without any interrogation or without much thought behind it, just belittle them in the most sort of like efficient way you could. She's like, oh God, she's such a slut. And like, maybe you heard she kissed a person. (laughs) Maybe you heard she kissed three people. But the label of slut could get slapped on anybody quickly if they kind of stepped outside of the patrician bounds of what was considered appropriate. And this is a time too, like as as me and Sam have discussed um, before and will continue to discuss again, because it is a huge blight on horror of the era, particularly in those 2000s, the use like homophobia as a joke was just rampant in this time. Like the use of the use of, fag as a colloquialism to mean anything that was kind of dumb or lame was almost like the, the conversation we had had around this so many times is that 
the homophobia was so casual and commonplace that it, you know, it, the defense of it would surely be people saying like, you know, oh, well, I don't mean it like that. Like, it's not like a gay thing. It just means because it's dumb. And the, the proliferate terms like that were so proliferate at the time that people could talk themselves into believing that these could just become catch-all insults for things while being totally divorced from reinforcing the pejorative, the, the, con- the negative connotations that went along with being gay or seeming gay. When in reality, that's just fucking microaggressions. And at the time, the microaggressions of slut-shaming women were very commonplace. Like, that was nothing to even bat an eye at at the time. And I'm sure at the time, insofar as I was thinking about it, what would I would have been 16 when this movie came out? So I probably saw it around, like, 16, 17, 18. Well, I know I loved Paige, and I loved Denise Richards, and I was also fucking infatuated with her the idea of her friends um putting her down i i remember not having it wasn't a response to them of being like yeah page like you brought it on yourself but it was just like yeah of course they'd say that to page those are the choices page makes what the hell are you doing what are you doing here detective vaughn is a disgusting lecherous scumbag what happened after you left he put his hand on my thigh did you ask him to what do you think? <laughs> I don't know. And it, yeah. was a, it was very much a response to women's sexuality in the era of, well, what were you wearing? What were so, you asking for it? And yeah, this is the time when male rape was played for laughs in many films. Yeah. It's something that is still very much so. and bothers me very much. And I wish mm-hmm. it would stop. Yeah. No, and it's, I think it's a, it is, it is most, I think it's additionally fascinating to consider this conversation too around the fact of Denise Richards and casting is so key in these movies. And it's so key to our conversations that we have on this, this particular podcast, because you have Denise Richards who, you go back to Tammy and the T-Rex and that movie comes out in the, in the early nineties, 93 or 94, I think. And she is young. She is early 20s at best, possibly late teens. And Denise Richards has looked like Denise Richards, um, sort of bombshell of mid-90s Hollywood, since she was a kid. She was built the way she's built from very early on. She has those bold, beautiful features. She has that, she has all the parts on paper that form almost a kind of weird science girl. Like she, she's one of those actresses with a, with a physical presence where she seems to, if you film her in certain ways, if, if you film her in a very heteronormative male gazy way, she checks all the boxes of sort of like conventional male desirability and feeding that like red meat to your male viewers. And that also creates a figure that is very easily dismissible as because what does she look like a bombshell? So what does that maybe make her slutty? If yeah. she is introduced as, competition for the women around her well then they can minimize her as that because she catches the notice of the men around her if you are a male character then it is your god-given right to assume that because this denise richards person looks the way she does well you obviously have access to her body because she wouldn't go looking or walking around looking like denise richards the audacity if that was not an invitation for even a police officer in his, in his office to slide his hand up her thigh and say, So Paige, what are we going to do about this? And she tells him, I thought that was your job. You're the detective, right? I'm not talking about the case, Paige. Don't be coy. I'm talking about this. This. Tension. The tension. Sexual tension. Let's be frank. Detective Vaughn, please remove your hand from my thigh. All right. Where would you like me to put it? How about up your ass? And the reason Denise Richards is having is emasculating men throughout this movie is because even in circumstances where flirtation is okay and it is an exchange, like the man she meets at the speed dating 
in the speed dating scene who comes back as a rejoinder in the very end and he joins at Dorothy's house party. They are meeting under the auspices. This is a flirtation. Like they're there to get sexy. Hooking up is probably in their future, but he takes it like, okay, because I got Paige. And he says to her, Next time I saw you, I knew you were kinky Paige. And so he takes her upstairs and he drops Trow and she looks at his dick very judgmentally. And he says, What are you waiting for, honey? Wax it. And she just looks at him and she goes, You brought me up here to show me your penis. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, she basically laughs at him, which is yeah. kind of like an overarching theme for this movie. It makes me yes. think of that famous quote that's like, men are afraid that women are going to laugh at them. Yeah, what's the worst fear of, of women? It's that, what's the worst fear of men? It's that they're going to be laughed at by women. What's yeah. the worst fear of women? That they're going to be raped by men. Yeah, or that they're going to be killed by men, which is yeah. exactly what happens in this movie. Paige is laughing at all these guys, and then she mm-hmm. leaves. And meanwhile, the guy that was rejected in a way that was like a long time ago and also seemingly not as bad as many of the ways that men have attacked Paige throughout her- Through, you know, Throughout her life. On Earth. Throughout yeah. her life. Yeah, this or is- just It gives us a timeline. It's 13 years removed from the incident at the dance is when we enter the story of the adults with Valentine. Yeah, but male rejection, the male ego is so fragile that we are supposed to be more concerned with the fact that he was rejected once, 13 once. years ago by mm-hmm. a bunch of immature little girls. Mm-hmm. And he's going to use that as an excuse to justify murdering grown women who don't even remember him anymore. Mm-hmm. And somehow that's seen as something that should be more relatable than a girl that is preyed upon because she was born just naturally beautiful. Well, in that, like I have, and this is something I've discussed with Sam too, and it's, 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 a, it's a, a running theme in my personality is I have a lot of hot people sympathy. Specifically, I have a lot of hot girl sympathy. Um, not in the sense that I am a hot girl. Uh, you know, anyone's mileage may vary, but in the sense of there is a currency that comes with being very attractive. That is absolutely true. There is privilege that comes with that. There is entry into places and in, into maybe opportunities that comes with being attractive. That is fact. What is also fact, specifically for women, is that when you are very attractive, you are a magnet. When you are a moderately attractive woman, when you are, when you are any shade of attractive or not as a woman, if you have orifices and you are a woman, men will start talking to you and assume that they have a right to your time. And in certain cases, a right to your body. And in extreme cases, a right to fucking take your body by force. And when you are someone who is as attractive as Denise Richards, and in the way that Denise Richards is attractive, which is branded as this sort of like sexual bright light that men are drawn to like moths, and they just assume she's down to fuck. And in in this movie, we see a cop making an advance on a woman who is has a case, open case with him where people, women are disappearing. And at the very least, there is someone actively menacing her and her friends. And he takes an opportunity in the middle of this investigation to try and get her to bang him. And then we have the guy from the speed dating ground. He says, the minute I saw you, Paige, I knew you were a freak. And then you have to, you take that and you extrapolate that out to the life of that character, Paige. And I would imagine to the life of Denise Richards, where what is this woman's life like in line at the fucking checkout counter at the store when a guy is bagging her groceries? Like when the cable guy comes over to fix her box that's fucking up from Comcast. Like how many times in the life of this woman has she had to cleverly, coyly, subtly, maybe at times viciously diffuse or shut down advances made upon her in inappropriate situations Paige, as somebody who is clearly a sex-positive person in her own life and likes hooking up with people and likes having sex with various dudes and good for her, she has also had to use her the reality of her body and develop a defense mechanism kind of personality around her humor and her one-liners to just preserve herself in this life. We all have friends, if not know in our own lives for ourselves as women, the ways in which we build these habits to protect ourselves. Because like, that's not a moment in a police station where a page has the right, even as a beautiful white woman, to slap a police officer in the face and say, don't you ever fucking touch me again. She has to like cleverly 
put this guy in his place, this police officer, without also putting herself in more danger, jeopardizing whether or not he will put his all into this case if he feels scorned by this woman. And fuck, she doesn't even know at that point that she should be looking over her shoulder from a boy that she insulted when she was 13 is going to come back out of her past and try and kill her because she was pretty at the dance and she didn't say no to dancing with this one boy. Like, and that is, it is, I've thought so much about this in the context of Denise Richards specifically as a human being. And it makes, it makes, there's so much substance to the role of Paige because of that real life reality of what it is to be a Denise Richards-esque figure and cut that shape in this world and be trying to navigate it. Like, the character of Paige is incredibly satisfying to watch when you take into account all of those environmental facts that come with being a woman and you see how well Denise Richards playfully moves through this entire movie because if she spent her days worried about the men who wanted to fuck her and she was going to say no to, she'd either never leave her apartment or she'd constantly be thinking about their feelings because she ne and she'd never get anything else done. You have to develop that hard shell that a Paige has and her friends because this is 2001, like you said, they need to have a sit down about the way they've internalized their misogyny around her and step up and be better supporters of their friend Paige instead of just assuming that she was asking for it all the time. Her friends need to have a come to Jesus moment. I yes. need them to seek help. It makes me, it, of course, she's not the final girl. Like, so Paige, Paige isn't going to make it through to the end. She makes it longer than almost any of the other friends. But that is why in, in rewatching the movie to, to do this pod, I had to skip over the death of Paige because even though it's a really good one and involves a hot tub and a drill and a drowning and an impaling and it's a really good death, I'm still bummed. I'm still so bummed that Paige, Paige, Paige died in the end. Cause yeah. man, she fucking deserved to like tumble down the stairs at the last second with like a a, a severe but not terminal injury and be like, don't worry guys, I made it. Like Paige yeah. earned the right to survive. Like the implication, yeah, she, she did. And, and, and the implication that this is somebody, that this is a woman who's had to deal with a lifetime of this like trifling bullshit, um, paying with her life ultimately for that exact, for, for a lifetime of sort of debt logged uh, against her of having to deal with horny, awful men is like, girl, you deserve better than that. I didn't want it to like be Marley Shelton instead. I just wish that it could have been the two of them together. And then yeah. that they killed Jeremy Melton. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand why Paige didn't get to live. I, I do understand the rules of slasher films. And I right. have a love letter to 80s slashers films specifically along with Giallo's. It's got heavy Giallo vibes with the, the killer and the way he looks with the black gloves mm. and um, it, it's very like, especially some of the way that uh, they, they show like the close up on the hands and the details. It's very Giallo-esque, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it, it's still upsetting to me because to me, Paige feels like such a great final girl. I feel like she is such yeah. a tough lady. Yeah. And honestly, she has less sex than any other character in this movie. So <laughs> yeah. Paige, is, Paige is the only one dismissing <laughs> men and not like fully inviting them naively into their life, into her life. I would love to see, I would love to see Valentine remade, like shot for shot remade now. I don't want a reboot. I don't want to reboot. I actually want everything the same, except Paige and Marley Shelton's character live in the end. And they like, right when Jeremy thinks he's got away with it, Paige shows up in the frame, fucking kills him. And I don't know, maybe they fall into each other's arms or maybe they just remain friends. I'm not entirely sure. But like, that I, I I just I that's I really want my fanfic ending for this one because Justice for Paige feels like the one way that this movie actually deviated from its thesis statements that I believe it was making that I would like to see borne out um in a present day more progressive context. I would like that too. Justice for Paige. I would definitely like to see her live. And the only reason why I could justify her death is because it just further drives home the point that right. men are terrible and yes. that they will kill you if you reject them 13 years ago. Yes. Yes. And I, you know, this, this brings us to, you know, we, we flesh these things out along the way, but like this brings us to the all important question of any Ots Tyrion episode, which is Kaylin, why does Valentine belong in this canon why is valentine 
Ops Tyrion certified. Valentine belongs in the criterion because it is a very well executed critique of the male species and the damage done by the male dominated world in the mm. guise of a schlocky B movie slasher. Mm-hmm. This is a critique of not only the male species, straight white men specifically. Yes, yes. But it is also a critique of the entertainment industry and how it handles women, as seen most evidently by Paige Prescott. Mm-hmm. And it's also a commentary on law enforcement. And wow, fucking Hall of Fame. Prescott women of horror. Put them in the fucking <laughs> Hall of Fame. Seriously. Paige Prescott, distant cousin of Sydney, both living in Northern California. Maybe? Yes. Maybe? I mean, I think this is an allusion to Scream, which right. Marley did co-star in Scream 4 alongside Sydney Prescott, Nev Campbell, who co-starred alongside fucking Denise Richards and Wild Things. We so, cracked it. We cracked, we cracked it. it. And it. shouts out to Deputy Judy. If you think Deputy Judy is a bad or dumb character, fuck you. I don't agree with you and you have bad opinions. Sheriff, you're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. You have bad taste. Yeah, if you have bad opinions, there you go. <laughs> I also think it's uh, something that I, I was thinking about a lot when I was watching this was Katherine Heigl's character and Katherine Heigl mm. in, in general mm. and how she's gotten a lot of hate over the years for the things that she has said yep. about Valentine. And it is like, she said things about Valentine, about Knocked Up, about Grey's Anatomy. But I do think it's worth noting that because of things that she said here and there randomly in random interviews that most people probably didn't even listen to the entire thing, Mm -hmm. she's had trouble working in this Mm -hmm. industry after that. It reminded me a lot of Megan Fox and the way that she was treated after she Mm -hmm. made comments about Michael Bay. Mm -hmm. And it's just worth noting that women are treated differently in this industry when they have opinions versus men. Um, And and a thing that, a challenge of of this of talking about (laughs) the making of any movie it seems there's always the hitch in my mind where I do fear going into you know extolling the virtues of any of these movies that I love that there is a story out there that I just don't know of a bad thing that happened to somebody of a bad experience that one of these women had on set and if Katherine Heigl is popping off about the experience that she had on Valentine I hope she didn't have a bad experience on Valentine but if she did then like she deserves to talk about that and deserves to say that. And, and sort of the ultimate, you know, downturned, the ultimate sort of sad trombone aspect of Katherine Heigl is that if, if the things that she said about the ex- work experiences that she had where she was expressing complaints, which were, and, and I have absolutely no reason to believe they weren't because look at the track record of the industry. If she's saying these things because she had legitimately bad experiences where she felt taken advantage of, or she felt walked over, or she felt compromised, and at the time didn't feel comfortable saying anything and then rose to fame a bit more and then felt more comfortable expressing the reality of what had happened to her and that resulting in her having opportunities winnowed away from her, well, then that validates exactly why nobody else speaks up. And... I think, and that's, and that's why we need to have these conversations. And that's why I want to go deep on these things because loving something does not mean completely loving it and eliding over the things that are challenging about it. It means identifying the problems and the challenges, taking them into account in the legacy or the reputation of the thing that you like, and then hopefully taking those things that you bear out on conversation and growing from them and being better. And I think, I think something considered uh, you know, silly or just fluffy, like a Valentine, I think is a really perfect opportunity to do something like that. And I think that it is a great, it's just simply a great model for a fun time slasher horror movie. And a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the killers in this era, something, the thing I love the most about Scream and why it's my favorite franchise of all time is because it is so very asexual in its presentation of violence. There is nothing pervy besides, you know, Melton and the guy, like the the plot about Sydney's mom. There's nothing pervy about the murders. There's nothing lewd and lascivious about the murders and scream. There's no suggestive sexual analog for the knife and the penetration. The kills are not framed around women's breasts or their curves or their bodies generally as like adding that layer of exploitative violence it keeps you safe from those things. And I think that's a hallmark of a lot of what goes on in that fun Kevin Williamson era of scares. So even while you have this character that's very specifically hunting women for the fact that they are women and they wronged him, there is not analogous rape imagery 
used in dispatching these women. And in doing so, it, that is something that makes me feel safe to enjoy the movie in the way that I want to without having to feel like I have to wash that part off at the end of it to enjoy the fun of it. And so I, I think given that there is like the touchy slut shamey shit, the fact that that can be balanced out with an asexual exacting of vengeance upon these women is at least for me a bit of respite in the reality of Jeremy Melton's motivation. But yeah, for all those reasons, I think Valentine is a first ballot aughts Tyrion piece of Hall of Fame cinema. Um, yeah, and a quick shout out uh, in this movie to, I have to believe it was at least, I have to believe this is intentional, when Marley Shelton and Jessica Capshaw are getting in their fight and Jessica airs out that she has like been, um, marginalized as the fat friend their entire life and um marley shelton says like in the defense of adam she says okay fine he's no angel but he's not a murderer when in fact famously david boreanaz is very much angel and i i believe that will bring us to the end of our conversation but caitlin would you like to tell folks where they can find you and and perhaps what you would like them to find of yours of course. You can find me on Twitter at Kaylin Corrigan, same handle on Instagram. You can find my writing on slash film, uh, Bloody Disgusting, Vulture, Fangoria, basically anywhere that you can read things. I've probably written for them. Mm -hmm. If you want to pay me, I'll write for you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can hopefully find me soon on Jordan's Patreon because I'm currently working on an article for her. Yeah, yeah. No, we're, you know, it's an ecosystem. This is an ecosystem of people that we want to be supporting one another. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at JorCrew, J-O-R-C-R-U, and on that Patreon at patreon.com slash Cruciola. Uh, and, you know, feel free to go ahead and uh, binge all the episodes of A Simple Podcast, uh, the podcast dedicated entirely to the movie A Simple Favor that we have dropped all nine installments of, and uh, because that's a great time. And then, as if I needed to tell you, but do keep continuing to log on and listen to the Odds Tyrion podcast because we have so many more gems of the millennium era and its horror treasures to unearth for you. So this is your, uh, this is your host, Jordan Cruciola, signing off and, you know, saying justice for Paige. Justice for Paige. <laughs>